you will turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Luke 5, we continue our walk through the gospel of Luke. And this morning we will be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Is entitled Fishers of Men. Our key words for our worshipers and training are disciple, call, and follow. Now, all of us have single moments in our lives that we can point to as, uh, as to pivotal changes. Things that change the entire course of the rest of our lives. Single moments, single things that happen. Uh, sometimes the, the circumstances surrounding those moments are very difficult and grievous. Perhaps it's the tragic and unexpected death of someone you're very close to. The loss of your entire life savings overnight because of a market crash or a corporate scandal. Words from the mouth of a doctor like, It's cancer, or you don't have much longer. These things have a way of instantly, in a moment, changing the way we look at everyone and everything around us. Sometimes the circumstances of individual life-changing moments are exciting and joyful and wonderful. The minute you first lay eyes on your newborn child, what we've just witnessed this morning, new life in Jesus Christ. Winning an iPad in a fundraising raffle. Kidding. What God does in the hearts of all of His children, bringing us to a place where He opens our blind eyes, unplugs our deaf ears, removes the veil from our darkened hearts and causes us to live. For some of us, that's a process. Not not everyone has a single moment that they can point to specifically where the Holy Spirit turned the lights on for us. But it happens in that way and we may not recognize it because it's been brewing for a while. But every true believer has a moment when suddenly we see, we believe, we understand, we are alive when we were once dead. Now, as we move forward in the gospel of Luke, we're going to see time and time again that there are these individual life-altering moments in the lives of people that Jesus comes into contact with. We've seen several of those moments already, haven't we? Imagine being Zecharias in the temple having an encounter with the angel Gabriel or Elizabeth, the elderly woman uh, now pregnant with a son. She was barren all her life and now she's told she bears the forerunner, the one who will come and announce the coming of the Messiah. How about Mary, a virgin, now pregnant with the Son of God? I think that announcement and that reality for her was somewhat of a life-changing moment, wouldn't you say? And as we see Jesus heal and, and teach and ultimately die and rise from the grave, we see hundreds of examples of instant life-changing encounters. This is one of the beauties of what God has ordained in proper baptism, isn't it? 
rejoicing in what God has done in altering the course of an entire life by granting new life and being reminded each time of our own encounter with Jesus for the very first time in a saving way. We rejoice in that God is saving lives today and changing the course of human history as a result. And what we will look at this morning is one of those moments in the lives of a few men who up until this point lived pretty generic Jewish lives as fishermen in Galilee. They were common men. They had very common jobs. Just as we've seen all along, Luke has made it obvious that God's focus isn't on the religious elite or the political savvy. It was assumed that this is exactly who the Messiah would be. A great Pharisee, perhaps, or a a political revolutionary who would lead the Jews to conquer the Romans and rule the world forever. That's not what Luke shows us. He shows us that God dealt with the lowly. He dealt with the poor, the weak, a faithful elderly couple, a young peasant girl, a demon-possessed man, a sick woman, And now this morning, everyday fishermen. But before we get to them, let's see what was going on. Watch the intentionality of Jesus and how he does everything he does on purpose. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Now remember at this point, Jesus is becoming more and more well known to the people. Recall in chapter 4, we read the word was spreading about Jesus far and wide. He was healing multitudes of people. He was teaching with authority. He was teaching with clarity like no one they had ever heard of before. And remember in the account we read last week, Jesus couldn't even get away for a time of solitude without the people finding him and seeking to be healed or to hear him teach. And so now we see him by the lake of Gennesaret. And Luke writes that the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God. That's an amazing statement. The picture we're getting here is that these people, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people from the towns and the villages and the cities, a mass of people crowding around and eventually getting to where he was being pressed in on. So he had all these people around him And to his front, they stood. And to his back, there's a big lake. There's nowhere else to go. (laughs) I want to pause for a minute in verse 1 and look at something a little more closely. Notice that Luke writes why the people were pressing in on Jesus. He writes that they were there to hear the word of God. Now, if you speak fluent Christian... You probably read that and think immediately about the Bible, right? We call the Bible the Word of God, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's very true and right. It is indeed the Word of God, but that's not what Luke means here. This is really quite a spectacular revelation 
It wouldn't have been lost on Theophilus as he read the gospel account from Luke in the Greek language. Luke is literally saying here the people were pressing in on him to hear a word coming from God. In other words, they weren't just listening to Jesus open up an Old Testament scroll and read it to them. Luke is making plain here the divinity of Jesus. When he spoke, when words proceeded from his mouth, they were the very words of God. And so the people were listening to the word coming from God. So quite literally, every word, every phrase, every sentence that Jesus spoke was the word of God. The word coming from God. So Luke creates this wonderful tension that has to be held very tight. Remember, Luke is emphasizing over and over again, we've seen the humanity of Jesus. But he inserts all of these little statements throughout his gospel account. Almost to say, remember, he's a man, but he's no ordinary man. This is the God man. He is divine. He is God. I want to mention this too because I think it's important for us to be reminded regularly of what our focus is as the people of God, as the church gathered, what our focus is to be. As we see here, it's really an easy thing to gather a crowd of people. You know that? It doesn't take much. It really doesn't take much to draw a crowd. We could have the right lighting and the right mood and the right music, all the right facilities and graphics and say the right things in the right way. And instantly we could see a big crowd. And then if you add to it and build on it, you can get the crowd larger and larger and larger. It's really not that difficult. You see it in many different venues in many different ways. Just look at the masses of people that clowns like Benny Hinn draw. Why? Why do people go to be a part of that nonsense? It's a show. I mean, I I sat with some of you and, and watched the absolute nonsense that goes on in those places. We saw him hitting people across the body with his jacket and them falling on the floor and convulsing, claiming that they were healed. You can watch as he waves his hand over thousands of people and they all fall backwards on top of each other. It's a show. It's easy to gather a crowd. Mr. Blinky-Eyed Dental Patient of the Year down in Houston, they bought the old Astrodome and paid $96 million and put lights in the ceiling to change the colors to manipulate everyone's emotions, put a spinning globe on the stage and have a full-scale production week after week after week. Thousands upon thousands of people flocking to see the show, flocking to get their fill for the week. But here's the deal. We might be able to draw a crowd week after week that grows and grows and grows because we offer them the best candy that our money can buy. But it doesn't take long that when everyone is getting full on candy, their bodies start to shut down. They start to balloon up, and we all start to drag. Eventually, everyone is sick. And the only way to keep them coming back is to offer better and better candy. 
Well, we could do that right here in Rinkin. And with all the right elements in place, within six months, I bet we could triple our size and be well on the way to having thousands and thousands of people wanting to hear what we are doing and see the show week after week. Now listen, my point is not to get us all riled up and against big churches. There are some big churches that preach the gospel really well and very faithfully and don't do all the gimmicks and sideshows like a circus to draw a crowd. But for whatever reason, the Lord has seen fit to grow those places to large numbers under the faithful, biblical preaching and structure of a solid, well-ordered ministry. And we praise God for that. In fact, one of, the, one of the great heroes of most Reformed Baptists is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached some of the greatest biblical sermons that the world has ever known at the Metropolitan Tabernacle Church in London when he pastored there. There were over 5,000 members of that church. But I assure you, what God did through him is a very rare exception. It's not normative. Because for biblical faithfulness, The goal is biblically sound, theologically rich, Christ-centered, God-glorifying worship derived from and focused on what God has revealed to us in the Scriptures alone. Unless God bring about great revival as He has at various times and various places throughout history, it's not something that's going to pack us out to the rafters. But here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean, again, that there is a problem with a lot of people simply because it's big. Size is not the issue. Additionally, it doesn't mean that churches that are small are small simply because the truth is being taught and people don't like the truth and they'll never come to hear what we have to say, so we'll always be small and we're proud of it. If that's the attitude... We've missed the boat entirely and are riding on the ship of pride. It is good and right that we preach the truth of the scriptures, but we are commanded to do so in love and humility. If we are gospel focused, God will save people and God will grow his church. And that's a good thing. We want to see people baptized. We want people to hear the truth. We want people to join the body of Christ for edification, for fellowship, and to serve for the good of the kingdom of God. So we've got to stay balanced here. We're going to wander off into all sorts of crazy ideas. Either we're too good for the very neighbors that God has called us to proclaim the gospel to, or we're so busy trying to attract the world that we become everything the world is as to not be able to make any distinction between us and them. Now, perhaps that seemed a bit off track from the text, but here's my point in all of this. Jesus was attracting very, very large crowds. And while he was preaching what was 100% true 100% of the time, the reason people were gathering around him to hear a word from God wasn't necessarily because they believed what he had to say or had any trust in him as the Messiah. 
To them, he was simply different than anything that they had ever heard before. And, and who knows, maybe he'll throw in a miracle or two along the way. We don't want to miss what's going on. Perhaps we'll see the show. And in seeking to not miss it, most of them miss Jesus entirely. Don't forget, these are the same people who are going to kill him in just over a year. So Jesus sees Peter and, and, and Mark. And, tells, uh, and Mark tells us that his brother Andrew was also present at this time as well as their fishing partners, James and John. They were washing their nets. They had a very unsuccessful evening of fishing. Now, Jesus is going to do something with them in just a moment. Remember what I said, pay attention to the details. Jesus is very intentional here. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God with power and authority, and all of these people are pressing in on him. And so he gets on Peter's boat and he says, hey, push us out into the water a little bit. He was on a floating pulpit. It got him back from the crowd a little bit so that he could resume his teaching. Notice how willing Jesus is to preach and teach wherever he was. Jesus' preaching wasn't isolated to the synagogues. He was regularly among the people sharing telling the people of the good news of the gospel as they pressed in on him. J.C. Ryle commented on this passage and he said, we should observe in this passage our Lord Jesus Christ's unwearied readiness for every good work. Once more, we find him preaching to a people who pressed upon him to hear the word of God. And where does he preach? Not in any consecrated building or place set apart for public worship, but in the open air, not in a pulpit constructed for a preacher's use, but in a fisherman's boat. Souls were waiting to be fed. Personal inconvenience was allowed no place in his consideration. God's work must not stand still. What a great reminder to all of us. Given the opportunity, most of us are prone to easily justify our unwillingness to speak the truth of God's word into the lives of those we encounter. Convenience always seems to be an issue. And yet, with Christ as our example, again, J.C. Ryle writes, where we are and as we are, in season or out of season, by one means or by another, by tongue or by pen, by speaking or by writing, let us strive to be ever working for God, but let us never stand still. Amen. Great example of the Lord Jesus Christ, that wherever we are and whatever circumstances, that the gospel must be proclaimed in word and in deed. Let's read verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking 
They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Wow. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman, so I try to think of this in terms I'm more acquainted with. I try to think of this from Peter's perspective. Now, remember, Simon Peter already knows who Jesus is, right? We saw this last week. Jesus rebuked the fever in Peter's mother-in-law. He healed her. So Peter knows Jesus isn't the average carpenter. But you see in the text, when Jesus tells Peter to drop his net into the deep water, Peter almost has a sarcastic response for him. So here's how I imagine this in my world. If you've ever gone golfing, you realize real quickly that you're not very good at it. It takes a lot of time to practice, to even get to a place where you'd ever consider even wanting to keep score. (laughs) But when you're learning to play, you might have the great privilege of going with someone who is really sarcastic because not being able to hit a tiny ball with a giant stick in a straight direction isn't frustrating enough on its own. So I remember when I was learning how to play, I, like most new golfers, had a really bad slice. Every time I hit the ball, it just drifted off onto the right, sometimes almost at a 90-degree angle. And in most golf courses, especially around here, that means your ball is either in the trees or in the swamp or in the water, somewhere, uh, somewhere you don't want it to be. It's less than wonderful. So what you really want to hear at that point is your playing partner to say, hey, you're supposed to hit it that way, not over there. And you're really thankful that they cleared that up for you. Oh, you mean I'm supposed to hit it onto the short green grass out there and not into that snake infested swamp over there. Man, thanks for the tip. I hope I can remember that going on to the next hole. Now think of it. Remember, Peter isn't entirely clued in to who Jesus is exactly right now. That's about to change, but Peter's not quite tracking with who Jesus is. And I, I like Peter. He's kind, of a, he's kind of a shoot from the hip kind of guy. He says and he does a lot of really dumb things. And then Jesus corrects him and then he swings all the way to the other side of the spectrum. And so Peter here says... Uh, he hears Jesus say, hey, throw your net into the deep water. Can't you just imagine Peter wanting to say, oh, you know, we've fished all night long, but that little spot right out there in the deep water, we didn't throw it there. So you're right. I'm sure they're going to be fish all over down there. They're just going to swim right into the net and fill up the boat. And hey, probably we're going to catch so many fish that when we pull them up, the boat's going to sink. I'm going to have to call the other guys to come and help me. Now, good for Peter. He doesn't say that exactly. But because of his response in verse 8, we can very easily see how that sort of thing was in Peter's heart. What happens? Peter says, all right, if you say so. I mean, we didn't catch anything before, but whatever, we'll try it. He throws the net into the water, and what happens? Everything he thought wouldn't happen, happened. Truly a miracle, right? 
all night long, hard work, casting the net, pulling it in, casting it out, pulling it in, nothing. Backbreaking work over and over and over, nothing. This is a big deal. This is their livelihood. Now, one cast, and suddenly a great multitude of fish, so far beyond the ordinary quantity that there was no question about whether or not it was a miracle. Now, if Jesus didn't go big here, it wouldn't have been met with the same sort of response. If they pulled enough fish to make lunch for the few of them, Peter might have said, oh, hey, good call. Glad I gave it a shot. But there were so many fish. It took two boats and four men to collect all of them. And even then, the boats were sinking because of the weight. Can you imagine? It was undeniably a work of God. So what's the point? Why did Jesus make this happen? Once again, as we looked at last week, Jesus was displaying his power and his authority. He has displayed the authority of his word, his authority over demons, his authority over the human body and sickness, and now he displays his authority over the elements of creation, the fish of the sea. And so while we continue to get this big picture of Jesus' humanity, we also see the undeniable reality of his divinity. And the result for Peter is that he responds in the way we expect Peter to respond. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. I can't imagine all the different thoughts that were going through Peter's mind. One writer described, here was the Lord of fish and fishermen, the Lord of nature, the Lord of men and their daily work. It's here at this point that if Peter didn't completely understand, and he probably didn't, that Jesus was the Christ He at least had some understanding of the divine presence within Jesus. And so he calls him Lord. Peter knew in some way he was in the presence of God. It was undeniable given all that he had seen in his last two encounters with Jesus. And notice Peter's response. Look at what he says. I am a sinful man, O Lord. He doesn't say, oh, you were right. I was wrong. He doesn't say, good call on that one, Jesus. No, he tells him, I am a sinful man, and you are the Lord. Peter knew his own heart, and he knew that it was about more than simply questioning what Jesus had told him. He had sinned, and he saw the nature of his heart. It wasn't so much that he had committed a sin, it was much more. It was that he was a sinful man. It's never about a single sin. It's always about the nature of our hearts. And faced with the authority and the power of Jesus, he is instantly made aware of his wickedness. The evil intentions, the selfish motives of his own heart, and with trembling, he is made immediately aware of the personal consequences of his sin. 
And this is the response we see all throughout the Bible when sinful men have powerful encounters with God and come face to face with His holiness and recognize their own sinfulness. Consider a few examples. Isaiah 6, Isaiah says, He saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted, high and lifted up. How does Isaiah respond? With fear. He says, woe to me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Immediately upon seeing the Lord, he is made aware of his sinfulness in his own heart in relation to what he realizes about God and his holiness. Job had the very same experience. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And John wrote in the book of Revelation, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And at some level, this is the response of every true believer in Christ. It is by God's grace that we are made aware of our sin, of our sinful nature. Because recognizing our brokenness, recognizing our nature, recognizing what is contained in our hearts is a requirement for salvation. If I don't know what I'm in bondage to, I don't know how or for what reason I need to be saved. If I am completely unaware of my self-righteousness and my desire for those things which God calls evil and my hatred for those things which God calls good, I will remain in bondage to my sin. It is by God's grace that we understand our sinful condition. It is by God's grace that we understand our very own hearts. So if you're a Christian, I hope that you don't look at those who are lost with anything other than great pity and sorrow. They have not seen. They do not understand. We must pray for God to save them, to make them aware of their sinfulness, that they may turn to Christ. Confessing our sin is the prelude to forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ. John reminds us if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you recognize the condition of your heart and your great need for something other than your own goodness to stand before the holy God of the universe? Do you recognize your utter inability to live up to all that God has commanded of men and your complete inability to do what God requires of you for your salvation? Praise be to God that Christ has fulfilled all that the Father has commanded and that the Father receives what Christ has done as our payment, as our fulfillment when we trust in Christ as the great treasure of the universe. It seems very odd, but the way to freedom in Christ is to put ourselves in bondage to Christ. The way to freedom in Christ is to recognize our bondage to sin and to transfer that bondage to him who sets us free. Now notice Peter recognizes in some way who Jesus is. 
Notice also what he says. Depart from me. Depart from me. He doesn't feel worthy of even being in the presence of Christ. We've all been there, right? Perhaps some grievous sin in your life that you've committed. Unable to pray. Unable to talk to others about it. Unable to even form the words in your mouth to bring before God. I don't even feel worthy to be in his presence, to even talk to him. I don't feel worthy to be among his people. Perhaps you feel like you've sinned so great that you can't be forgiven. There's nothing that you can do before the Lord that he will forgive you. And I assure you that is true. There is nothing that you can do before the Lord that you be forgiven. But no sin is too great and no life is too evil that Christ will not grant forgiveness because of what he has done in living a perfectly righteous life in fulfillment of the law of God. We can't clean ourselves up. We will never be good enough. We will never be able to approach the throne of God on our own merits. And so in many ways, it is true. We are no way worthy to be before the throne of God. And every one of us should have the heart of Peter in our sin. Depart from me. I'm a sinful and wicked man. And yet at the same time, we recognize the great work of Christ on our behalf. And the scriptures tell us we don't run away from God on the day of judgment. We run to him and we stand boldly at the throne of grace before him, proclaiming Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my hope. Christ is my gain. It is by Christ and by Christ alone that I come to stand before the Father and receive the grace of forgiveness and entrance into paradise forever and ever. And that's what we don't see in Peter yet. We will later in his life, but in this point in the story, we don't. The more we know of our sin and the more we know of Jesus in light of those sins, we don't keep running away from him, but instead we run to him. He and only he has made a sacrifice for our iniquities, taking all of our sins away. He and only he can forgive. He and only he can give new life. He and only he can put our lives together because they are so broken. Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you see who Jesus really is? Then run to him. Run to Jesus. How does he respond to Peter? He doesn't cast him away. He doesn't deny the reality of what Peter said. But with gentleness and compassion, he says, the end of verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For now on you will be catching men with love and compassion and grace and mercy. He looks at Peter in his sinful state, in his confession of sin, and he tells him, do not be afraid. 
And all of this has happened. And it combines to make up what I mentioned at the very beginning, an event in the lives of these men that completely alters the course of their entire lives in their minds. Fishing was what they were going to do forever. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus responds to Peter's repentance with the announcements of what Peter would be. And in the text, there's a really neat nuance that brings all of this to life. The phrase catching men at the end of verse 10 is actually a combination of two words. One of the words means to catch or to hunt. But the other word means alive. So Jesus' statement is literally, you will be catching men alive. So while the fishermen caught fish to kill them and to sell them for food, they would now catch men, not for death, but to bring them that they might live. And as you read about Peter's life alone throughout the Bible, this is gloriously true of what God accomplished through him. Two times in the book of Acts, we see once he preaches and 3,000 come to faith in Christ. Another time, 5,000. It's an amazing reality. He truly did catch men for life. That's a wonderful description of what God calls us to as his disciples. Proclaiming the only good news that brings about true life, the perfect life and sinless death of the Lord Jesus Christ in which he took upon himself the weight of our sin and the wrath of God as our punishment. His burial in the ground for three days and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. It is we who need to be raised from the dead. We need to be caught alive. Our only hope is to be caught up in the gospel net of God. And so the call is cast out. And we must pray as we cast out the net that the Lord sees fit to fill it. And to fill it full. That as we pull it in, our boat sinks. Let's see how the men respond at the very end of this passage. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter and his partners are tired. They're overwhelmed. They're amazed. And perhaps they're even a little bit confused. They're standing in their boats, completely surrounded by fish. And there's probably still a massive crowd standing on the shore. And Jesus tells them in an instant that the entire focus of their lives has just changed. It will never be the same. So what do they do? They left everything and followed him. Everything. It seems so drastic and radical. But this is the logic of the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, 44. It's one verse. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. A true believer in Christ gladly puts to death the former life to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The greatest treasure that can ever be found, the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus calls all of us to various places in life. We all have different jobs. We all have different families, different hobbies, very diverse backgrounds. 
We all live in different neighborhoods and talk to different people and shop in different stores. And by God's design, our differences are what make us, his church, capable of casting the gospel net far and wide to catch alive the men and women that we know. Our neighbors, the people we work with, the family members we have, the people we do our hobbies with, the gospel net must be cast and we must pray that God would fill it. I love to hear the stories that many of you tell me of opportunities that you have to share the gospel with others. Opportunities that you have to tell others of the grace of God available in the Lord Jesus Christ. People that I may never have the opportunity to talk to myself. But you were able to. And by God's design, you and I are fishers of men and have a great calling to catch men and women alive. That they may see the value of the kingdom of God and leave their former life behind and walk in the newness of life in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, in God's providence, gospel opportunities turn into celebration opportunities as we baptize new believers into new life and union with God's people in the church. I don't know if you remember what I said at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke when we started in chapter 1. I said one of the things that I was praying for as we walked through this Gospel is that God would be pleased to stir the waters of baptism in our midst. That He would, through proclaiming the Gospel account of Luke, proclaiming the good work of Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished on our behalf, that he would be pleased to bring new life in our midst. And he's doing that in a big way. We continue to baptize. We continue to see new life in Christ. And we continue to see that proclaiming the gospel, not just here, but as we go out, God is pleased to use that by his power and for his glory that we can come and gather and celebrate what he has done. It's a wonderful, marvelous truth and reality that we get to experience together. May we continue to pray that the Lord does this great work as we recognize his power and his authority through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, you are so kind. You are so faithful to us. You are so near to us. And Lord, I delight that as we are reminded of the sinfulness of our own hearts, our tendency to doubt your word, to doubt what you call us to do, to consider our own ways better than yours. That as we come to you and confess our sin, that you tell us to not be afraid. That you tell us in your word, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a great and glorious promise that we as your people, we live and dwell together as sinful human beings. But you, O Christ, you are with us. 
And we need not be afraid. That boldness can come from our hearts as we proclaim that we are yours and you are ours. And in you, we have life forevermore. And so, Lord, I pray that as we are crushed by the weight of our own sin, that you would raise us up to remember that Christ has paid the penalty, that Christ has secured our eternal promise. And in Christ, we can walk in the freedom of forgiveness as your children. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would be pleased to continue to grant life-changing events in the lives of people. That as we all go out as fishers of men, that you would be pleased to bring them to life and that you continue to stir the waters of baptism for men and women and children that as we come together, we can celebrate what you have done. Thank you, God. I'm overwhelmed by your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. And I pray that you continue to fill our hearts with the great truth of your word and the great longing to see you glorified in our midst. We love you. We praise you. We thank you and we ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.